Psalm 104. Last week we finished the five great blessings of Psalm 103. The first five verses, one verse a week, blessings that prove uh, the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father through it all. This week we'll finish off our focus on the Father before we go back to Revelation to focus on the Son. So we'll finish this week the focus on the Father by turning from his faithfulness to his goodness, which is the main theme of Psalm 104. The themes of these two psalms overlap. In many ways, they're paired psalms that highlight his faithfulness, his goodness, and over it all, his loving kindness. They're the first two in a cluster of four psalms, Psalm 103 to Psalm 106. These four psalms start with Psalm 103 at the very middle of the Bible, actually at the middle verse. The middle verse of the Bible, I don't know if you knew, maybe some of you did, is Psalm 103.1. And so these Four psalms start at the middle of the Bible and progress on uh, uh, because really I think they're there because these attributes are so central to God's nature, that of his faithfulness, his goodness, and through it all his loving kindness. And he wants these to be central to our lives. These are some of the deepest answers to our father hunger. They're what the child in us most tends to call into question when life gets hard, when the fullness, you know, goes out of life and you're alone in an empty universe like that little white church in the middle of the scene. At times like these, we tend to question his faithfulness, his goodness, and his loving kindness. But the main theme here in Psalm 104, it includes the others, but the main theme is that of his goodness, which is the final answer to our father hunger that we'll be looking at, which he alone can fill through whatever loss, whether of a father, mother, family member, or pastor. And hopefully this message will also be the answer to whether or not I can do more than one verse a week, because we're going to, believe it or not, ready or not, we're going to cover all 35 verses, Lord willing, if you pray. So let's have at it. Psalm 104 is what theologians call the sedes doctrina. We need to put it in its context before we jump into it. So let me start doing that. The, the sedes doctrina, that is the seat of the doctrine, and that is, uh, in this case, is one of the seats of the doctrine of his goodness. It's one of those places in Scripture where you'll find, out flesh, you'll find it fleshed out in a comprehensive way. And the bottom line, according to Psalm 104, the unique slant that it, that it gives to his goodness, the bottom line is that God is good, and the emphasis here through an image that I hope we'll never forget is that God is good all the time. And what image is that? Well, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. And we're going to see today that that picture up there on the screens captures the heart of what this psalm is teaching. It's the result of all that God is doing in this psalm, and not just in this psalm. It's a living likeness, that picture, uh, of, uh, we'll see, of what he's doing with you and me. That he's making everything beautiful in its time, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. All the work of the Father in his capacity of the Creator is very good. The idea of the good earth comes from the Judeo-Christian tradition. It, it, and it ultimately comes from Scripture, from Genesis 1, where five times it says God saw that it was what? Yeah, good. And then the sixth time, just so there's no mistake, and he saw that it is very good. All the work of the Father in his capacity as the Creator is very good. And in Psalm 104, we see the work of the Father in his capacity as the sustainer, which is also very good. 
It presents the Father as the caregiver and the caretaker of the good earth that he created. Starting in verse 1 where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. David immediately puts God's goodness in the context of his greatness. Just like we sang, how great is the Lord. And then he goes on to say, you are so great that you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. The message translation says you are dressed up in sunshine. How great is that? And then he goes on from the sun to the stars. It says he stretches out the heavens like a tent. That is, he spreads out the stars as easily as we would erect a tent. From the get-go, God puts, uh, David puts God's greatness into, next to his goodness because his greatness is foundational to it all. All through the scripture, the two almost always go together to the point that you'll hear it from the mouth of babes. I don't know if you remember the prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. He is so great that by his hands we all are fed. How great is our God. That's Psalm 104. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. The scripture pairs these two attributes because his greatness gives his goodness a wondrous fullness that you can see up there on the screens. And on the good earth, through it all, it gives his goodness a wondrous fullness in what he's doing in our lives. Which leads us to the main lesson of this psalm. So you can see the forest for the trees before we jump in. And you can fill in the blanks at the top of your notes. God is great enough to be good always and everywhere, even through life's earthquakes, winds, and fires. God is great enough to be good always and everywhere, even through life's earthquakes, winds, and fires. You can rest in the arms of a father like that. When you've been disappointed or disillusioned by any other, whether father, mother, family member, friend, or pastor, or when you're in some earthquake, wind, or fire, through it all, you can rest in the arms of a father who is great enough to be good always and everywhere and promises to be so, especially with us. And so David begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent. This psalm is all about all that we can see. What's as plain as the nose on our face, beginning with the sun and the stars. Which brings us to Roman numeral, to point A in your notes. And this is the first phrase of the main application of this psalm. One that's based on the truth that he's great enough to be good always and everywhere. Because David is looking at all that we can, fill in the blank, see. That's the psalm. He's looking at all that we can see. And we're going to see today that there's just something about all that we can see. There is a lesson there that's worth, you know, putting on your refrigerator. One that stood me in good stead now for over 30 years. I didn't come up with it. I don't know who did. You won't find it anywhere I know of, even if you Google it. But it begins with the words, all that we can see. And at the end of the message, we'll see what the other part of it is. Because David concludes it, concludes his psalm essentially with the last part of it. 
There's just something about all that we can see. And just what is it? Well, let's read it one more time to finish setting the stage where the answer will appear once we're done today. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Covering yourself with light, he says, as with a cloak. The scripture teaches something about all that we can see in the creation. And this is one of those places where it does that. And that is this, that nature is the cloak. It's the visible garment of an invisible God which allows us to see him at work. The work of his hands. The work of where he's going, what he's doing. And which, uh, and which allows us to conclude a whole lot about God through all that we can see, including what we'll close with today when we get to Roman numeral two in your notes. As Calvin said, the Lord represents himself in his works with very great clarity. And you can draw lessons from his work that you can bank on, especially when they're reinforced by scripture. In heaven and earth, we see outlines that trace a living likeness of him. David saw that. Theologians call this his natural revelation, which backs uh, his special revelation in the scripture. We are living in a world, said Thomas Merton, that is absolutely transparent. God is shining through all the time. This is not a fable or a nice story. It is true. God shows himself everywhere because he is, every, he is everywhere and in everything. And then he concludes, the only thing is that we don't see it <laughs> too often. But David did see it. He was looking at the stars when he said he stretches out the heavens like a tent. And we don't have time to unpack any one of these verses, but let's just focus on the stars briefly. Here's what Michael Card saw in the song that he wrote, Car Star Kindler. He had eyes that saw what David saw. He said, a billion bright and holy beams from a light that's traveled far began the trip from his fingertips. Oh, the wonder of the stars. They proclaim the signs and seasons, so silently they sing of the wonder of their kindler, of the power of their king. Oh, the fiery suns above us in the vast veil of the sky, like the, uh, are your servant flames of fire, your silent holy guides. And like the star-led magi, they guide our souls to you and shine a light of awesome love into eyes that see anew. Do your eyes see anew? In Psalm 104, David is shining the light of awesome love into eyes that see anew. You clothe yourself with light because biblically God's goodness is the expression of his love and his love is his light in which there is no variation or shifting shadow according to James. God's goodness is the expression of his love and his love is the engine of his goodness. Awesome love. And so surrounding, David sets the stage by saying that surrounding and suffusing the good earth is the light of the love from which it all comes. Presto changeo, light, good earth. But too often, as Merton said, the only thing is that we don't see it. Even Google can't find just what it is, you know, about all that we can see. But David didn't need Google because he had eyes that see anew. And he was saying, essentially, they guide my soul to you. He saw that there's just something about all that we can see as it guides our souls to him. And just what is it about what we can see that as it guides our souls to him? Well, having set the scene now, let's read on. 
O Lord my God, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent, the fiery sun's above us. And then he says he makes the clouds his chariot. Let's look at what he does and then we'll see the lesson at the very end. David's saying that the clouds embody their chariot, which means they embody his very activity with very great clarity, as Calvin said, as he flies through the skies to care for the earth. And we'll see just how in a bit. And then he makes the winds his messengers. Verse 4, he's saying God sends messages about who he is through the winds, through the winds, plural. That is through different kinds of winds, there are different kinds of messages. The soft summer breeze so shows how soft and tender he can be. The lush swells of spring tells about his lush, his rich love. Winter's sovereign blast tells us that he is to be feared. We can see God's judgments in the winds. According to Hosea 13, it says, The east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, and Israel's fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. He makes the winds his messengers, back to verse 4. And fire, flaming fire, his ministers. And you're thinking his fires, the fires are his ministers? He's talking about the fires of nature here, which we well know about in Colorado. He's saying they're ministers that do his work. It's all through scripture. It's through fire that he judges the earth. It's through fire that he refreshes and uh, renews the earth. It's through fire that he purifies the heart. Looks like hell once they sweep through, doesn't it? And you look around and you say, some good earth, some good Lord. Remember Estes Park back in 2000? It, it was just before we left. There's an apocalypse coming to Summit County where we have, have our home now thanks to all the beetle kill. It will happen eventually. I'm hoping that'll be just after we leave. <laughs> when it comes, believe me, we're going to need eyes that see anew. So I'm practicing right now. Remember those blackened stumps around Estes Park sticking up so meaninglessly, so menacingly? It was a hellish landscape. But look at what happens. Look what always happens years later. There's, there's a flourishing of life. And there's a lesson there. It's a living likeness of how he manages our lives. Do you need eyes that see anew? Right now it may seem like he's got nothing but, you know, a slash and burn policy in your life. Right now all you may see are the charred remains of your most cherished hopes sticking up meaninglessly, menacingly. But in fact it's a severe mercy. I can say this with all confidence. Whatever fire you endure is for a flourishing of life, the likes of which you've never seen before and ultimately for the flourishing of your eternal life forever and ever. That wouldn't have happened without the fire. Because God is great enough to be good all the time. And all we need is eyes that see anew. But the greatness of his goodness doesn't end there. Verse 5, he established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. Think about it. What, what is the foundation of the earth? What does it rest on? Well, in Job 26, it says he hangs the earth on what? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Whoever said the Bible's not scientifically accurate? 
we now know that our planet is indeed just suspended in space, that indeed he hangs the earth on nothing. That is the foundation, but it's totally contrary to human wisdom. You might say that space is the easel that displays God's greatest work, the good earth with all that's in it. Deep space is the easel, but, but there's no pedestal for the easel. There's nothing for it to sit on. There's no atlas to hold the world up like the Greeks thought. There's no, there's no, it's not on the back of a turtle like the Chinese thought. No, in 2000 BC, the Hebrews got it right. He founded it on nothing. And you think, how does he do it? Who would ever have thought it, much less done it? He gives the earth a firm foundation that will not be shaken by hanging it on nothing. Go figure. And it's a living likeness of our lives for those with God's vision. Even when it feels like we're hanging on nothing, especially then, we're in his hands. We got a sure foundation. Verse 6, you covered the deep as with a garment. This is most likely the Genesis flood. You covered it, that is the earth, with the deep, which is Hebrew for deep water. And he goes on to say that the waters were standing above the mountains. That's how high they rose in the flood. But at your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Just like it says in Genesis 6, 8, the waters abated from the face of the land. And what happened when they did, reading on in verse 8 of Psalm 104, the mountains rose and the valleys sake down to the place with the, with, uh, uh, which he appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not return to cover the earth, just as he promised Noah. And as a result of it all, he could then water the earth the way he does now, which is why David goes from this deadly flood to the life-giving flow. And there's a lesson there too. Verse 10, he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains because both the deadly flood and the life-giving flow come from the same good hand. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. You give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift their voices among the branches. The wa he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his hands. And none of this would have happened without the deadly flood. And now there are clouds which the psalmist calls his upper chambers here, clouds which dispense his life-giving water. By them he causes the grass to grow for cattle, verse 14, and vegetation for the labor of man. By them he, make, he brings forth food from the earth and wine, which makes men's heart glad. Some of you probably like that verse. So that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. I've just, we can't possibly unpack this obviously. So let me just read the rest and let God's word speak for itself. To give us eyes that see anew the greatness of his goodness even through death and life. Verse 16. The trees of the Lord drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork, whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shephamim. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness, and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. 
The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their tents. Man goes forth to his work, to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There are the ships moving along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. To give, you give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. But you send forth your spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. It's all good. The NASB titles this psalm, The Lord's Care Over All His Works. It presents him as the caregiver and the caretaker of the good earth. It guides our souls to him with eyes that see anew. We see in what I just read that his invisible hand brings death and life together in his care for all his works. The light and the darkness, creation and and destruction, winter, spring, summer, and fall, the deadly flood, the life-giving flow, judgment and mercy. It's all there. All of them are indispensable parts of the good earth. And they all come from the same good hands. In verse 31, he begins his conclusion, but He's so taken up with all this that he then interrupts himself and goes back to something to, uh, to highlight the main lesson. But first he starts with this conclusion. Let the glory of the Lord, he said, verse 31, endure forever. He, he's looking at this like we are right now on the screens and he's saying, glory. It's all glory. It's not just kind of good, it's glory. He's saying such is the greatness of his goodness through it all that it's wondrous and glorious. Reading on, let the Lord be glad in his works, in all of them, even in the floods and winds and wildfires. Oh, there's a lesson there because we need to be glad too. David's saying, let the Lord be glad in what's made me so glad, even though it may feel bad. His unending goodness has inspired my enduring gladness. But then comes the interruption, just so we don't miss the main point. David jumps back to something he's already said at the beginning of the psalm because he wants to reinforce it at the end. And in doing this, he's telling us this is the most important thing I'm teaching here of all the things I've said, the most important application of all the ways you could put this into practice. And so he puts it both at the beginning and the end where it receives the greatest emphasis. He starts to conclude again, let the Lord be glad in his works. And then out of the blue, he adds, adds another work. As if to say, by which I mean the Lord is glad even in a work like this. And so am I. Verse 32, he looks at the earth and it trembles. God is so great that with but a look, with but a single glance, with a nod of his head, there's an earthquake. That's what he's talking about here in the Hebrew, trembles. And you think, where did that come from? Why does David save this for last? But that's not the half of it. 
He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. That is, he is so great that he just touches the mountains and there's a volcanic eruption. The idea being that this too is part of his care for his creation in which we're to be as glad as he is, as he said in the verse just before. His greatness is such that his goodness comes out even through this. And you wonder, how could that be good? I have no idea how David could conclude that is good, but today we know why it's good. We now know, as David did not, that without the movement of the tectonic plates which produce earthquakes and volcanoes, this planet would be lifeless. It's fundamental to life on earth in so many ways. Books have been written on it. Maybe David saw, though, the result of a volcano. Just look what happens thanks to the Mount St. Helens volcano, which erupted in Washington 40 years ago. It flattened 200 square miles of trees. It turned 200 square miles of rich forest into this gray landscape, into like this moonscape. But have you seen what it looks like today? It's a paradise. So why is it that in verse 32, out of the blue, David would bring up earthquakes and volcanoes and then conclude the psalm? It's because he doesn't want us to forget something. It's because we do forget something. He's saying that in God's economy, what seems bad can be good. He's saying that earthquakes and volcanoes, natural disasters of all kinds, all the way back to the Genesis flood are his doing. They too embody his activity. And that's how Psalm 104 climaxes. David finishes off fleshing out the doctrine of God's goodness, a psalm that's all about his watch care as a caregiver and caretaker of planet Earth. He finishes it off with a volcanic eruption. That is, he begins and ends with God's zap judgments with by far the greatest ones of all, beginning with Noah's floods and wildfires and ending with earthquakes and volcanoes because without his discipline down through history, without God's judgments on mankind, without natural disasters through earthquakes, winds and fires and much else, this planet would long since have become hell on earth, even lifeless. It's how he brings men to attention and keeps them from becoming their own worst enemy. And all sorts of good comes out of it. They gather together. They help each other. And without his disciplines in your own life, you would long since have fallen from him or you wouldn't be very deep into him without his going so deep into you. So it's all good. His goodness can feel like a cataclysm of bad news. It can be like a sword that draws blood and that penetrates your heart. It can be a flame of fire that scorches your very soul. It can be a quake that shakes the foundations of your life. You may feel like your life is hanging on nothing. But take heart. What's happening on this good earth is a living likeness of the good Lord's ways with all his creatures on his good earth and supremely with you and me. You know, through the years of my mother's widowhood when we were just little kids, when, when it really did feel like our lives were hanging on nothing, she'd play a song on our old record player and she'd play it again and again. Got the place where we'd play it too. 
It got so scratchy we could hardly hear it. But still we'd play it. Through, through the noise, we could hear it. To this day I can. If we could see beyond today as God doth see. If all the clouds should roll away, the shadows flee. Or present griefs we would not fret. Each sorrow we would soon forget. For many joys are waiting yet for you and me. If we could see, if we could know, we often say, but God in love a veil doth throw across our way. We cannot see what lies before, and so we cling to him the more. He leads us till this life is o'er. Trust and obey. But my mother would put a comma after that and not a period. She would tell us it doesn't end with that because we can see what lies around us. She knew more than anyone I have ever met that one way he leads us to trust him for what lies before us is to open our eyes to what lies around us. She couldn't get enough of the beauty and the glory of it all. She had tears in her eyes as she looked at the mountains and the trees and everything. That's why when she couldn't travel any longer, God gave her her lifelong dream and that is a condo in Colorado Springs with a view of Pikes Peak. She'd so enjoy her devotions out there on the porch as he guided her soul to him to cling to him anew through eyes that see anew. It's wherever we look. And now we can see it all at once in a way that David never could. In a single iconic image that captures all that David's talking about in Psalm 104. Because this masterpiece, framed in deep space, this liquid pearl on black velvet, and all it contains, from floods to flames, from hurricanes to harvest, from crops to cataclysms, from life to death, this glistening jewel of a planet, a wash and a palette of blues and browns and greens, an eyeful that's so beautiful it almost hurts. This incubator of our glory is a living likeness. It's the very picture of his good work in our lives. Who makes everything beautiful in his time. For those who love him. Which leads us to David's conclusion, which begins in verse 33. I will sing to the Lord, he says, as long as I live. What less could I do? I will sing praise to God while I have my being. And then he says, let my meditation be pleasing to him. And what does that mean? What kind of meditation is he talking about? Well, he goes on to tell us, because then he says this, and I'll have to get a running start at it. Basically, he says, through it all, through all that happens on God's good earth, through whatever happens to me, whether through life or depth or heights or depths or earthquakes, winds and fires, through tribulations and distress, as Paul said, persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword, as for me, Verse 34b, it's as though he's saying, I don't know about you, but as for me, a whole lot of people may disagree, especially during times when they cannot see. No one else may be doing this, especially through times like these, but as for me, I will be glad in the Lord. Even though the fires come to Summit County, may they guide my soul to thee. And then he concludes in verse 35. And what he says comes out of his loyalty to the Father of glory, 
out of the fierce filial loyalty that came from seeing all that glory, beholding the wondrous goodness of the righteous Father, he says, let sinners be consumed on the earth. And let the wicked be no more. That is, if in the face of all this goodness, which the Lord represents with very great clarity, as Calvin said, if in the face of all this great goodness, they still lift up the fist of their wickedness, they deserve what they get. Which is right out of Romans 1. They are without excuse, as Paul says. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because he's cloaked in the creation. Yet they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But as for me, David says essentially, I will give thanks. And so he ends the psalm by saying, Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, praise the, Lord. praise the Lord. Why? Because of the lesson of the psalm. God is great enough to be good always and everywhere. Through life's earthquakes, winds, and even fires. Which leads us to where we began, to what can't be found even on Google to the main application of this psalm, David's thanking God for all that he sees, even for what he can't understand, even for the earthquakes, winds, and fires. And in so doing, in thanking God for all he sees, in everything giving thanks, he's trusting God for all he can't see. And so at last you can fill in the blanks at the bottom of your notes. It's hidden even from Google, but with eyes that see anew, it's as plain as the nose on our faces. Just what is it about all that we can see? Again, I don't know who came up with it. It wasn't me, but it's this. All that we can see beckons us to trust God for all that we can't see. Let me say that again as before we sing. All that we can see beckons us to trust God for all that we can't see. Just as we sang, in thee do I trust, nor find thee to what? Fail. So getting back to where we began, if this goodness is the expression of his love, and if love is the engine of his goodness, what better way to end than by singing, like David sang, by singing together uh, of his love. Let's do that now.